It is not possible to form a just judgment of a public figure who has attained the enormous dimensions of Adolf Hitler until his life work as a whole is before us. Although no subsequent political action can condone wrong deeds, history is replete with examples of men who have risen to power by employing stern, grim, and even frightful methods, but who nevertheless, when their life is revealed as a whole, have been regarded as great figures whose lives have enriched the story of mankind. So may it be with Hitler. That was written in 1935 by Winston Churchill. I have four brief points tonight. The third is the longest. The first one is that things feel tense. Things feel tense. That opening quotation is just a little reminder of the desperate need that we have for a larger perspective in turbulent times and the right larger perspective. Even with the best of intentions and the long historical gaze of Churchill, he could not know the future, nor fully then even what was present or even past. That's not given to man to know. Such ultimate knowledge belongs only to God. And it is God's wisdom that we need to understand how loving unity can coexist with hot political differences. Tonight we come to a timely topic the tension we experience through our political differences. And this isn't simply the tensions that the Capitol Hill community at large may experience, but here the Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Though we are not of the world, we are in the world. And God has called us to live in a day and age where the population of our nation is politically polarized. Perhaps more polarized than I've seen in the other six presidential elections I've pastored through here. Moral positions are today both accepted and advocated that were receiving unanimous political condemnation when I came here. In 20 years, we moved from the Defense of Marriage Act to the Obergefell decision. That's just one example of rapid moral change in our nation. And those changes have been harnessed and used for political purposes by actors inside our nation and outside our nation. Social media began as a mirror. It is now being manipulated by commercial forces that created it and international forces that use it to distort our self-understanding. All this tension that we're experiencing in our congregation, of course, increased, is increased even beyond what our community at large may be experiencing because we actually share a fundamental unity, the gospel. That's why we're all together. That's why we're even here tonight. And so we have the added tension, not only of differing on some particulars, but of having something that makes us all be together. And that's where we must begin tonight. Number two, we are united. We are united. And I think we have to begin, if we're going to think about how we live with political differences by thinking about our unity as a church and what that purpose of our unity is. Because I promise the purpose of our unity is more important than any political opinion you hold. And if you don't understand that, you're going to speak in an exaggerated way and be divisive. Our unity is not merely so that we will experience peacefulness in our interactions with each other, but because our life together communicates something about God. When Paul hears about the divisions in the church at Corinth through those talkative people from Chloe's household, in chapter one, he reports that I, I hear this, his immediate question he asks when he hears about the divisions in the church is, is Christ divided? When you think about it, as a church, we have no other basis of being. The powerful theological presumption behind Paul's question is the church as the body of Christ. So for there to be factions and divisions in the church speaks the almost incredible idea that Christ is somehow divided. Because the church is his body, and you remember Paul learned that in his first day as a Christian. He's on the road to Damascus and to persecute the church in Damascus and 
the risen Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This shows us the seriousness of the responsibility we have to image Christ. So our divisions take on added seriousness because as with any unholiness or blame, they reflect on the one whom we are to image. Some poor, probably normally younger people spiritually may think when I don't agree with them or I push back on something they're saying politically or the volume with which they're saying it, that I must be opposed to them politically. When I'm thinking, you don't even begin to understand what's going on here. There is something so much larger than American current politics going on that it, it, it causes me to wonder what's become of your understanding of the gospel. Our disunity is really a lie about Christ and what he's like. Our divisions misrepresent the truth about Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. And it's, it's, it's the unity of God really that our divisions obscure. Christ prayed in John 17, 11, keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus wants us to be unified. A little further down in verse 21, we read that, all of them, those whom you gave me out of the world, those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. And then in John 17, 23, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We could stop and meditate on John 17, and I thought about just doing that for our, our time together tonight, but there is a, a huge concern here for unity. The unity that reflects the truth about God. So what does it mean for Christians to be one? Uh, too often unity is taken to be a facet of tolerance or even apathy. But in this prayer, we have some powerful antidotes to our misunderstandings of unity. Jesus here clearly teaches us that this unity is around the truth. It's a cognitive full, not a cognitive free virtue. Our own statement of faith says that the true center of Christian union is the Bible. Now that's in our very first article in our statement of faith. Jesus clearly ties our unity to the interrelationships of the disciples with each other. This is the unity which will be visible. Thus, loving the invisible God involves us in loving our visible brothers and sisters. So you see why division is dangerous. Our unity is supposed to show what God is like. Evidence of our being in God is our loving service for each other. As we show that kind of overflowing, self-denying love for one another, the love that God has shown for us in Jesus is made visible to the world around us. So Jesus prays for himself that God would glorify him through this unity. One more thing about the unity of God that was clear as I was reflecting on it this week, why it's so important that it be shown, is because the unity of God in Scripture is part of the exclusivity of God, the uniqueness of God. That is, he, he is the only God. Again and again in the Old Testament, we hear, you alone, O Lord, and then complete the sentence of what he's done. Hezekiah in his prayer in 2 Kings 19, or Isaiah in his prophecies in Isaiah 37 and 44, Psalm 83, Ezra in his prayer in Nehemiah 9, Revelation 15, so many places in Scripture, you alone, O Lord, made the world. You alone, O Lord, will judge the world. He alone is God. God alone is the judge who will finally say what is just and what is unjust. And that actually is perhaps probably our most basic political belief. And it's certainly shared by everybody in this congregation. So the most basic political belief is that God is king and he is not up for re-election. We can be confident of his continued just rule. Thus the importance of God beginning the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verse 3 with, you shall have no other gods before you. There is no other God for us to worship. And it is this uniqueness of God's being that calls in for his unrivaled role in our heart's affections. So when we come to Deuteronomy 6, we're not surprised to find the Lord teaching the people through Moses, the Lord, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's unity. 
And therefore, what's the, what's the outflow of that? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Why can we have an undivided love for God? Because he has no rivals, ultimately. He's the only God in town. He, he is the one who deserves our whole selves. Therefore, we see that our lives together give an important message to people, more important than any message you could ever carry for a political party. The parties don't deserve any allegiance which would rival our allegiance to God. Jesus taught that we are in the world, but not of it. Paul put it in Philippians in 3.20, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. You and I, brothers and sisters, are citizens of heaven. What a glorious privilege. Therefore, as I say, we see that our lives together are part of giving an important message. And that's really where we come to sort of this level one salvific matters of unity. This is the heart of our message. We're united around the gospel, matters of salvation, and necessary moral uh, uh, entailments of that. Uh, virtues clearly enjoined in Scripture and vices clearly forbidden. Uh, we are joined around attending. We understand that we cannot have a church if we do not gather. Uh, we understand that adultery is wrong. And that if you unrepentantly pursue adultery, uh, then you cannot be a part of this church and should not be a part of any church. Uh, the same thing with abortion. If you unrepentantly pursue abortion, uh, an unwarranted killing of a human life, you cannot be a part of a Christian church, certainly not this one. Now, many of the articles in our statement of faith, faith would fall into this category. So if you were to go through and read the 18 articles, you would find that about half of them uh, maybe a little more than half, would fall into this category of things that are necessary for us to believe. This shows itself positively in affirming the statement when you join our church. One of the things we ask you to do is affirm that you think the Bible teaches this. And this shows itself negatively when we as a church excommunicate those who join a church that teach against what we understand the Bible to teach about salvation. And that can either be through a doctrinal truth or through a necessary ethical implication of it. For example, unrepentant sins, as I say, of non-attendance, which is our most frequent action as a church in excommunication. Seems strange to new people, but it makes sense once you climb in. Um, or adultery, or as I say, advocating abortion, or advocating any of these. I'm confident it would be met with being excommunicated from the congregation by the congregation. Uh, for instance, you cannot be an advocate of abortion rights and a member of our church. The killing of unborn babies should not be expanded or promoted or even supported by the votes of Christians. We understand this is a flat contradiction of Mark 12, 31, the greatest commandment, to love your neighbor and a host of other commandments as well. Now, for those of you who are new Christians here, I want to make this crystal clear. It should not be the choice of any person man or woman, to kill an unborn child, boy or girl. To promote that is sin. If you have questions about that, talk to any of the pastors or elders here in our congregation. They will tell you the same thing I've just said, and we'll try to help you understand Scripture on that point. So in this political situation, you want to use your vote to do good. Now, however you use your vote, using your vote in a particular way is not going to save you. As a local church, we're not finally about human politics, as I was saying a moment ago. We have much bigger goals than that. We're about the gospel. The gospel is our only hope. And our lives should give testimony to this, not just in election years, but every year, every month, every week, every day. We must be exceedingly careful about elevating things to be necessary entailments of saving faith in Christ. This was the way that in the first century, even God-given things like circumcision and food laws became enemies of the gospel itself. When disputable matters became required, then they lost their disputable status. So they're either to be taken as a necessary entailment of the gospel, you must be circumcised, you must keep the food laws, or they're to be rejected as legalistic additions to the gospel. And when we want to add to the gospel, we destroy it 
And that's part of the nub that I can try to follow up with you individually about why we pastors are sometimes so frustratingly vague with questions where you want to see it more specific. Because we're going to be very careful in pursuing what the scriptures clearly teach and trying to leave you guys to get on among yourselves as we've educated your conscience through scripture about what you think entailments of that are that we can disagree on. But Paul was severe with the Galatians on an issue that touched on the gospel, not because he hated the Galatians, but because he loved them. And because he loved them, he hated to see their only hope taken away from them through confusion about the gospel. Number three, and this is where we'll spend most of our time. What about our differences? Well, friends, there can be diversity of opinions among Christians about many things. Our congregation's statement of faith attempts to foresee and prevent those secondary matters about which one could easily become divisive. Imagine me as a member of a Presbyterian church. And express our clear shared understanding of the Bible's teaching, even on certain non-salvific issues. We do this in part so that people can see what's inside and choose to come here. Or when they see it, they go like, oh, I don't think the Bible teaches that. I need to go find a church that, that teaches what I think. Is, uh, is a very important Christian belief. So this is where we get to this level two of matters or issues. And these would be things that we can be united around and need to be in order to have a church. Not necessary for salvation. And this would be issues like, we can think of a bunch of them, like a, a baptism. Uh, not whether or not it's salvific, that would be a level one issue. But whether or not you baptize an infant in the way a Presbyterian friend would or a Methodist friend would, or you don't, like we don't. Well, you're going to do one or the other. So it's either a legitimate baptism or not. So you kind of have to make a decision about that. Or a very practical one. What about the Lord's Day? Do we meet on the Lord's Day? Do we think we need to do this every week? Well, if so, that's a, it's not a salvific matter, but it is something that we take to be a constraint of our conscience from Scripture or near implication. And so we therefore agree on this as a church. And when you join us as a church, you know this. And if you Look at our statement of faith and find like, oh, I don't really think that. Well, then you'll see to join our church, you would you'd need to understand that Scripture teaches us, so you'd need to find a group of Christians that would teach something else on that point. But there is also this third level of disputable matters. And this would be all kinds of things about which we can both differ and yet be covenanted together in a local church, preserving peace, and relating edifyingly even through our differences. A New Testament example of this, of course, is meat sacrificed to idols that you'll see Paul deal with in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. A modern issue would be smoking. You know, can you smoke or not? Uh, when we lived up in New England, uh, the Christians were scandalized by the idea that a, that a Christian would ever smoke a cigarette. Pipes and cigars seemed different, but cigarettes were just beyond the bounds. And yet, if you were to go to First Baptist Church, Madisville, Kentucky, where I was brought up, between the services, the deacons are all standing out in a circle smoking, you know, their cigarettes. And it's just like, ah, Christians clearly differ on these things. Um, or let's, let's dig into one example, how we should respond to the God-ordained government. We know from Romans 13 that government is ordained by God. We know from Revelation 13, the beastly vision that government can go badly wrong. So how do we relate to this government? Well, we... We pray for them always. First Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2, we should never forget what a good gift of God government is. But some of you have lived overseas and you know how terrible anarchy is. And as much as you may complain about government, compare a bad government to anarchy and you'll probably take the bad government. Uh, it's something we should thank God for. We should thank God for the way our mayor and our president do what is good and right. Countless public servants serve us daily, including many of you, many of the members of this congregation. We should remember to pray for those who serve us in government. And we should normally obey them, Romans 13.1. That's our normal stance to the government. But there are exceptions. We sometimes don't obey them out of our superior obligation to God. Acts 5.29, they say that famously to the Sanhedrin when they're instructed not to speak in the name of Jesus. We should obey God rather than man. This is captured very nicely in our church's statement of faith in Article 16 of the Civil Government that we hope to hear a sermon about from Bobby this coming Lord's Day. 
We believe that civil government is a divine appointment for the interest and good order of human society, just what I'm saying, and that magistrates are to be prayed for, see I said that, conscientiously honored, obey them, and obeyed, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the Prince of the kings of the earth. So if our government tells us to do things against our conscience, well, that then pushes us over into mildly lawsuits or less mildly peaceful civil disobedience or least mild of all, revolt. And a fourth thing just briefly about in this way that we relate to government, uh, we can work to change both rules and rulers. Uh, and these are another set of decisions that we need to realize we may not have unity on. E even if our goals are the same, let's say everyone in this room wants to end abortion. Well, that doesn't mean that everybody in this room has to think the same way is the best way to do that. There are a number of challenges to thinking well here. Uh, for, for one thing, sin is so deceptive. Uh, both what it is and even then how clear it is and therefore how clear it should be to others. And even if we've clearly seen what it is, how best to deal with it. These are all matters Christians can disagree about. Christians disagree. One advantage of independent congregations, like our 50 states, they can act as test cases to instruct each other as they, in faithfulness, take this position or that. But you can find groups of Christians who take all kinds of positions on these outlying issues. Number three, for example, as Christians, we take concerns about justice and injustice very severely, very seriously. But concluding if there is a problem, and if there is a problem, what that problem is, and what that problem is, and then how it can best be addressed, all of these things Christians may and do disagree on. Now, action sometimes precedes agreement. Sometimes Christians are standing around debating on things, and the society just comes right on through with some kind of decision about a disputable matter. So a hundred years ago, the government enacted prohibition of alcohol as a beverage, uh, as a commercial sale and use. So, so there that was. It, it's a disputable matter, but now it's, it's become something a little bit different because now it's part of obeying the government. Or if you go back even further in our country's history, when the American colonists decided to rebel, first politically and then even militarily, well, that was a decision that all Christians did not agree with. Uh, there were many Americans who were in the colonies who then moved to Canada because they thought what was being done was not morally justified. I know that we can be paralyzed in thinking well about matters like this for fear of being epically wrong. Uh, part of the, the uh, brilliant tactics of the human rights campaign, which has tried to normalize homosexual relations has been to use that idea of being on the wrong side of history, like this scary threat. You don't want to be found there, do you? Well, friends, we have a little bit better grasp on history, where it's come from and where it's going, than any friends we know, Christian or non. But I think it is true to observe in all humility that we as Christians have sometimes been on the wrong side of issues. A great case study for this, if you want to look at it, is the issue of American slavery. I mean, this just repays study after study after study, um, both in American law and practice. It has been a, a story of great heroism and great tragedy. Clear Christian commands were violated against enslaving, 1 Timothy 1.10, showing partiality, like we're thinking about a couple of weeks ago, James 2.1, the command to love your neighbors yourself, most basically, Leviticus 19.18, Mark 12.31, Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14, James 2.8, the royal law of scripture, not stealing, honoring your father and mother. We could just go on and on of the cascade of disobediences and sins uh, that were created through American slavery. And it's very interesting. In an earlier period in our history, there were more critics of slavery than there came to be closer to the Civil War. So, for example, if you were to survey 
Baptist Christians in the 1780s in the South. You'd find they were opposed to slavery. They denounced it as evil. The general conventions in Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia, you can go read resolutions where they did that. But by the 1820s and 1830s, for all kinds of reasons we can speculate about, those sentiments in the southern part of our country began to change. Now, our congregation was started by Christians associated with the Northern Convention, which uh, objected to slavery and refused to send slaveholders as Christians. Spurgeon famously noted this controversy among Christians to his shame, he said. This was in a Sunday morning he, sermon he preached at his church in March of 1860. And when I say at his church, I mean it's his church like we're at our church these days. They were meeting in uh, Exeter Hall in the Strand because their new building was being built. So he had like 10,000 people there. This is just a short excerpt. But now I have a very sad thing to say. I wish I could withhold it, but I cannot. Unless, brothers and sisters, you make it your daily business to see that there is a difference between you and the world, you will do more hurt than you can possibly do good. The Church of Christ is at this day accountable for many fearful sins. Let me mention but one, which is but the type of others. By what means, think you, were the fetters riveted on the wrist of our friend who sits there, a man like ourselves, though of a black skin? It is the church of Christ that keeps his brethren under bondage. If it were not for that church, the system of slavery would go back to the hell from which it sprung. If there were no slave floggers, but men who are fit for so degrading an office, if there were not found Christian ministers who can apologize for slavery from the pulpit and church members who sell the children of nobler beings than themselves, if it were not for this, Africa would be free. Albert Barnes spoke rightly when he said slavery could not exist for an hour if it were not for the countenance of the Christian church. But what does the slaveholder say when you tell him that to hold our fellow creatures in bondage is a sin and a damnable one, inconsistent with grace? He replies, I do not believe your slanders. Look at Bishop so-and-so or the minister of such-and-such such a place. Is he not a good man? Does he not whine out, cursed be Canaan? Does he not quote Philemon and Onesimus? Does he not go and talk Bible? And tell his slaves that they ought to feel very grateful for being his slaves. For God Almighty made them on purpose, that they might enjoy the rare privilege of being cowhided by a Christian master. Don't tell me, he says, if the thing were wrong, it would not have the church on its side. And so Christ's free church, bought with his blood, must bear the shame of cursing Africa and keeping her sons in bondage. From this evil good Lord deliver us. If Manchester merchants and Liverpool traders have a share in this guilt, at least let the church be free of this hell-filling crime. Men have tried hard to make the Bible support this sum of all villainies, but slavery, the thing which defiles the great republic. Interesting, he would refer to the United States as the great republic. The thing which defiles the great republic, such slavery is quite unknown to the word of God and by the laws of the Jew. It was impossible that it ever could exist. I have known men quote texts as excuses for being damned, and I do not wonder that men can find scripture to justify them in buying and selling the souls of men. Well, that's a stance Spurgeon took on a very fraught subject in his own day, where not all Christians were clear. But what about for our differences? How important are they? Are the political differences that we at CHBC are experiencing today, do they rise to this first level, the matter of salvific matters? Certainly, we've said necessary entailments of the gospel, like opposition to abortion, other sin explicitly uh, condemned in Scripture, those are, must be included. Another timely example would be the sin of partiality. Again, we mentioned this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. We could go many places to examine it, but let's just go to the scripture we were thinking of then, James 2.1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Two kinds of partiality have been discussed a lot lately. First, showing partiality towards someone because of their ethnicity that is being favorably or unfavorably disposed to someone because of their appearance, their wealth, or their status, particularly when that would benefit you. Friends, this is absolutely forbidden to Christians in regards to their welcome in the church and every other implication of that. But secondly, the other kind of partiality is the lie that we are fundamentally merely the sum of the groups that we are part of, uh, the powerful or the weak, 
what gender we are, what race we are. Any such critical theory which is presenting itself as the most basic truth about people cuts across more basic biblical truths. One, that we are all made in the image of God. Two, that the two groups which are most determinative of us are being in Adam or being in Christ. And three, that there is hope for everyone of whatever group in Christ. If our differences are not at the level of salvation, are our political differences at the level of those things we must agree on in order to have a church? Like we have to agree about baptism or when and how we'll meet. Or are they matters about which we can sustain disagreement, like the early church did with meat sacrifice to idols? Or like our congregation tries to on drinking? Or like I guess some Christian congregations did here in America in the 1770s and 80s over the revolution? Or maybe that tended to divide the congregations. Or whether or not there's an ultimate hope for ethnic Israel. At which level are our various political differences best understood? Well, friends, in part, this is an individual decision. You need to consult the word and you need to consult your conscience. Look again at Romans 14. How clear is something? How significant is it? That is, we as a congregation may decide that something is a matter about which a local congregation can sustain disagreement. Indeed, we may decide that such diversity of opinions makes our congregational community more compelling to the world around us, which knows deep and bitter divides over those issues. Because it so clearly demonstrates that as important as this issue is to me, and it could even involve my job here in Washington, that which I have in common with my fellow church members is even more important. It's even more basic. It's even bigger. We would like for the visitor to feel welcome here. We think that the breadth of our political positions found here is not a negative, but is a positive. It actually testifies to the power of the gospel when it can unite those on Capitol Hill that everything else seems to divide. The unity that is supposed to mark us, that we see, say, in 1 Corinthians, or we thought about in John 17, is important because we're representing God, remember. This God is one. He is the only one. So our unity is a vital part of our holiness. It's like the evidence of our love working. It gives testimony that we've perceived the superior value of that which unites us in Christ over that which divides us politically. However, let's say that you as an individual may come to have such clear convictions on a particular matter, such as a particular conclusion about racism in our past, or solutions going forward, or certain conclusions about particular strategies to oppose abortion. And it may come to seem so significant to you, those particular conclusions, so much so that it begins to dominate your thoughts and conversations with others in the church. Your conclusions on these matters, may, you may realize are not salvific, but they seem so important that you find yourself speaking with other members about these either more often or with more emphasis than you do about the weightier salvific matters that you agree on. Or then you speak with them about other church-defining issues you agree with them on. Uh, or about other disputable matters, which the congregation has left to be disputable. And it's when numbers of Christians begin to think about a certain matter, previously disputable about them, begin, begin to think we have to have agreement on that. In a way, that's what elevates a particular matter from something disputable into the second level, at least of where actually we've come to conclude we all have to agree on the American Revolution or else we can't really be in church together. I think the fewer we can keep those number twos and the more numerous the number threes, the better our witness and the healthier our life, but there are certainly things that deserve to be put in that number two circle or even the number one circle. That's certainly true. Of course, any individual Christian can draw such a fellowship determining conclusion whenever they feel they must so long as that does not involve compromising the gospel. Such a request for release from our membership covenant in order to pursue such a membership in a congregation which more nearly conforms to their conclusions on this matter, previously undetermined by CHBC, 
would almost certainly always be granted and perhaps even encouraged if that church preaches the gospel clearly. For the part of the CHBC pastors, uh, we will continue to teach God's word with all the specificity that we think is good and helpful. And I trust we will always be clear on the main things. Members are always free to send us questions and ask us whether we think that agreement on this matter or that should be encouraged or worked for in some new way. But if the elders themselves are divided on an issue, it is unlikely that we will find ourselves wanting to lead the congregation to adopt a more narrow, defined position on an issue than that which we have already adopted ourselves. You may be feeling that we're not giving you the detail that you want because we're pursuing a different agenda than the one your sources are feeding you. The Bible does not directly address events unique to American history. But I trust that Scripture is fully sufficient to teach us everything we need to understand the gospel and to apply it in our context, whether we're in Tanzania or Russia or Colombia or here in the United States. We've just gone through half a year of diminished intake from Scripture. Never has this congregation been in a weaker position. And never have the forces of polarization been as powerful as they are through social media these days. So in some ways, I think in our 140 plus year history, what we're undergoing right now in terms of a trial may be the most severe trial we've ever undergone as a congregation. More and more, whatever media you've consumed in the last six months has almost certainly informed your narrative, what is loudest in your mind, more than scripture and the normal rhythm of our life together. So let me zoom in on this issue individually for a moment from the perspective of one who themselves comes to a clearer conclusion on a matter than this congregation has. What should you do if you find yourself having come to a more restrictive position on a matter? For example, let's say you conclude that contraception is always wrong. And that's not just a matter for you personally. Rather, it's something that you feel is important and significant and you need to tell other people this and work to this end. Well, I would encourage you in five ways. One, pray and study God's word about the issue. Two, read widely and well. Three, converse with thoughtful folks, including some elders that know you best. Four, if it's of sufficient weight, perhaps ask that the elders engage with the issue. I mean, as, as elders, we, do, we, we have a lot of work, but that work is shepherding you, and sometimes that work involves us taking up principial questions. Uh, we try to anticipate that. We have special issues meetings around them. And number five, do not become divisive in the body over the issue. Because when you do that, you're proclaiming your understanding of that particular issue as essential to understanding Jesus sufficiently. And if you do that, I'm quite sure that the elders will feel obliged to think of, well, positively, something like what, what Paul says about the church as Christ's body that we were thinking about earlier, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. There may be no division, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. That's what's to typify the members of a church. Or negatively, I mean, the scriptures sadly are full of evidence that there was a problem with divisiveness in the first churches. Uh, Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Paul has similar words to the Corinthian church, similar words to Titus. And, of course, Jude has some warnings about that. And these may be very serious. It's interesting when Paul is writing to the Galatians. And uh, it's a letter, of course, in which Paul himself has been so divisive. He's been severe. But he's been divisive over the gospel itself. But then when you look at how, when, when he lays out the works of the flesh there in, in uh, Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. I mean, how prominent that idea of disunity is as a work of the flesh. And it makes sense because, of course, the flesh doesn't perceive Christ in his soul-winning and saving beauty. So for the flesh, some of these issues are the biggest things they know of. They are the things that they count most dear. So we can see how that would happen. 
Brother, sister, if you are being divisive, this should be a warning light on the dashboard of your soul. Lloyd-Jones said in commenting on Romans 13 passage, he said, whatever your view of the state, you must never allow it to affect your relationship with other Christians. If your interest in the state or your view of it or your reaction to it comes between you and other Christians, you are in a wrong and false position. Close quote. And let me just personally speak as an under-shepherd. I understand myself to be commissioned by God to especially care here for the sheep that Christ has died for. And if through your sincere concern about voter fraud or identity politics or voter suppression or systemic racism, you speak in ultimate or exaggerated ways about these things so that you threaten the unity of the body, you at some point become my enemy because I must defend the sheep for whom Christ has died that are here. I accept a lack of unanimity in our culture and even in our church as a part of the freedom and responsibility that we have in a democracy. But caring about positions people hold more than about the people who hold them is unchristian and harmful and undermines the loving care that we are giving our lives to provide here for each other. The truth can be handled in a way which is dishonoring to it. Brothers and sisters, whenever we're speaking, we should keep in mind what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let us, each one of you, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Uh, James 4 speaks so eloquently. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So there are many other places we could go in the New Testament about how we're to love one another. I love the example of Paul over in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> it's, it's been 20 years since I did that overview sermon of 1 Corinthians here. Maybe I should redo that sometimes. But sometimes 1 Corinthians is thought of as just a uh, miscellany. But I really think it's united around the theme of love. And that became very clear to me years ago when I was preparing a sermon for here. And I was studying chapter 9 where Paul gives up his own rights. He had a right to marry, a right to be paid by the Corinthians. He left both those on the table because he thought it would serve them better and would serve other Christians better. That's the love that he then commends to others throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's that self-giving love laying aside rights. That's how he says you need to deal with the, the guy who thinks you shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul knew that was ridiculous. He knew the idols were nothing. You can eat the meat, it's going to be fine. But he knew there were some people who didn't think that. So what do you do? You minister the truth to them. Yeah, okay, you minister the truth. Let's say you minister the truth, and at this point that doesn't seem to work very well. Okay, then what do you do? Well, that's what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not everyone has all the keen insight that I may have or you may have. But some, through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol. And their conscience, he says, being weak is defiled. And then Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But... Take care that this right of yours 
does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul spent his life living in that kind of love of laying aside his rights for others. Every sentence we speak to someone else should be spoken in love. Every description we give of another person, particularly fellow church members, should be given in love. We have no legitimate way to regard each other for whatever disagreements we may have politically, except in love. Even if you should choose to go to another church and you're leave-taking, emphasize those things of greatest moment, the gospel, which we can still relish together, even if now best in separate congregations. Number four, in conclusion, we'll be fine. As your pastor, I have not before told you who you should vote for, and I will not instruct you in who to vote for this time. And if needs be, as our society gets more and more polarized, I'll keep giving a talk like this every four years until I'm dead or you fire me. I hope and pray that your conscience has been shaped by God's word, by what he values and will continue to be. You will give an account to God for how you use all that he gives you, your life and health, your smarts, your love, your money, your influence, your decisions, your votes. So roll up your sleeves and do the hard work. Pray and study and live and love and realize that God may leave people around you who disagree with you so that you will be exercised in love. And you may one day, when you're standing before him, come to see that as more important than you've currently understood it to be. Let's keep doing those daily tasks that God calls us to, knowing that the formation of character is long, hard work that will benefit the rising generation. Friends, as a local church, we've rather, we've rather weathered everything from the end of Reconstruction to COVID. I trust God intends to use us in these days as well. Mr. Clinton was reelected in 1996 and God remained on his throne. Mr. Bush was elected in 2000 and reelected in 2004 and God remained on his throne. Mr. Obama was elected in 2008 and reelected in 2012 and God remained on his throne. Mr. Trump was elected in 2016 and God remained on his throne. Whoever the American people elect in 2020, God will be remaining on his throne. Because we're so close up to it, we get a little confused sometimes. Paul wrote under a Roman emperor called Nero, who would eventually take Paul's head off. Many Christians around the world today live under much worse governments than ours and under the fears that you sincerely hold of what this government will become if the other guy gets elected. We, the church, are the great fact of history, not the American government. As I've observed before, America is an experiment. The church is a certainty. Recent political changes in England had turned out badly for many Bible-believing Christians there in 1662. Thomas Watson had to resign his church in London because of his faith in the Bible. On his last Sunday, he was allowed to preach to his congregation. He said, you may now triumph not only in the consternations, but in the triumphs of your enemies. Whether they ride over your back or you tread upon their neck, tis all one. The issue will be the same. Your troubles and your consolations differ only in their countenance. With whatever grim face your afflictions look, there are smiles underneath. Learn to see through them and you may see light on the other side. Believe this word. You may read it written upon everything that befalls you. There's no messenger who comes but brings this promise in his hand. Even this shall work for God. Read it and rejoice. Four passages to encourage us as we go. Number one, Matthew 10, verse 16. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents 
and innocent as doves. Brothers and sisters, we need discernment. Not a wary, scared kind of discernment, but a confident, joyous wisdom, knowing what will last and what won't last, and moving along through life with that knowledge. Number two, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Number three, Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. Number four, Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face. And it is that blessed sight that will fill our vision throughout all the rolling ages to come. It's in anticipation of this future, certain and everlasting joy that we can have peace now as individual Christians and as members of this dear congregation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, show us how we can best glorify you and love our neighbor through the political opportunities and responsibilities you've entrusted to us. Make the badness of sin more and more obvious and repulsive to people. Cause them to seek a Savior. Show them Christ through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I do want to just recommend four written resources, and then we're happy to take about half an hour for, for questions or discussion. But four written resources I want to recommend to you if you haven't read them. Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung a few years ago did a book called What is the Mission of the Church? where they deal with a number of specific uh, biblical passages at some length, and I think you can find that helpful. Number two, Jonathan Lehman's book, How the Nations Rage, a little bit more theoretical on politics, but you can, might find that helpful. Many of you I know have recently read Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley's book on conscience, which is helpful on this third uh, level of disputable matters. And the most recent Nine Marks Journal, I mean, it's aimed at pastors and church leaders, but it just came out week before last, I think. And there's a lot of articles in there that are very interesting. Uh, I've had pro and con response about Jonathan Lehman's article on how to understand a vote. He did a very short two-page version and then a longer, like, 13-page version. But some people have found it helpful, how to understand your vote morally and ethically. And that's by Jonathan Lehman. I think it's the first article in that issue. You can get that issue for free uh, online. Just go to ninemarks.org. Ken Mbugwa did a very interesting one on pastoring through political turmoil. When he explained what it's like to pastor in Kenya when the different factions actually shoot at each other and dispute the elections. So there's just lots of perspective from around the world on, uh, on political turmoil that you, you might find helpful. Well, much more can be said. How about some interesting and edifying questions? I'll do my best to, yeah. And when you give your question, start here, and then we'll go there and then there, and just do give your name and then your question.